This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The year was 1969, and Hollywood starlet Sharon Tate was on top of the world. She had love, a successful film career, and a baby on the way. Then everything changed. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more of history's most detestable true crime events, subscribe to Today in True Crime. Episodes release daily, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today is Sunday, August 9th, 2020. On this day in 1969, four members of the Manson family had broken into the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Just after midnight, they murdered Tate and her house guests. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the Manson family murders. These grisly murders were so shocking and vile, they're said to have ended the peace and love spirit of the 60s, ushering in an era of violence and political upheaval. Let's go back to Los Angeles, California. Our story begins after dark on August 8th, and into the wee hours of August 9th, 1969. Charles Manson had never told them to kill anybody, not explicitly anyway, but that was how Charlie talked most times. He just had a way of saying things without saying anything at all. That night, he'd allegedly stuck his head in the car and said to his followers, if you're going to do something, do it well, and leave something witchy. Those words had rattled around in 20-year-old Linda Kasabian's head during the long drive down from Spawn Ranch. She sat in the driver's seat next to 23-year-old Tex Watson, who seemed to know exactly where they were going. 
In the back seat, Patricia Krenwinkel and Susan Atkins were jittery with anticipation. Eventually, they pulled into the long driveway at 10050 CLO Drive. Tex pulled over a ways back from the house and told the three girls to pile out of the car. He sent Linda to the back of the house to be a lookout, while Tex, Susan, and Patricia snuck around front. Inside, Sharon Tate was mixing cocktails for her three house guests, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski. Tate herself wasn't drinking, being eight months pregnant at the time. She was happy with her big belly, ready to meet her baby, and glad to have her friends surrounding her. The four of them had spent the day enjoying one another's company. In fact, they were so busy having fun, none of them noticed when Tex Watson stepped through the sliding door and into the living room, gun drawn. Nor when Susan and Patricia appeared behind him. It wasn't until Tex whispered to Susan that Wojtek realized someone else was in the house. When he demanded to know what was going on, Tex spat, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Sharon and her friends held on to one another, hoping these invaders would rob them and leave. But that hope quickly faded when Tex growled, you're all going to die. From her vantage point in the backyard, Linda Kasabian couldn't see much. It was a peaceful summer night. She heard the canyon winds, the crickets, and then a blood-curdling scream cut through the air, followed by three gunshots. Panicked, Linda ran toward the house, toward the sliding door connecting the living room to the backyard. What she saw made her blood run cold. Inside the house, Tex was on top of Wojtek Frakowski, repeatedly pistol-whipping him over the head. A few feet from him, Jay Sebring crawled toward the sliding door, blood pouring from a gunshot wound in his stomach. Before he could get very far, Tex pounced on him, stabbing him over and over until Tex was drenched in Jay's blood. Meanwhile, Susan Atkins tackled Sharon Tate, who was begging for her life. As Sharon screamed, Susan stabbed her pregnant belly and chest. Sharon tried to crawl out from under this madwoman, but Susan was relentless, plunging a knife into Sharon's back. The only person Linda couldn't see was Patricia Krenwinkel. Just then, Abigail Folger came bursting out a side door and into the backyard. Patricia tackled her. Folger screamed as Patricia cut into her 28 times. The sound of the knife ripping at Folger's flesh made Linda sick. Linda turned away from the massacre, ready to heave, but she stopped short. Standing before her was a bloodied, beaten Frykowski, miraculously still alive. He'd been shot twice and beaten over the head with a gun, yet somehow he'd managed to crawl his way out of the living room and into the backyard. The two stared at one another for a moment. Then, Frykowski staggered past her and collapsed on the grass. As he lay dying, Tex shot out of the house and jumped on top of him, decidedly finishing the job, stabbing him 51 times. 
Once Sharon and her guests were dead, the four Manson family members fled the scene. As the foursome sped back to Spawn Ranch, the sound of that blood-curdling scream rang in Linda's ears. She closed her eyes, nauseous from the smell of warm blood filling the car. In a moment, the aftermath of one of the most infamous murders in the American canon. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the night of August 8th and into the early hours of August 9th, 1969, Four of Charles Manson's followers murdered Sharon Tate and her friends, supposedly in an attempt to kickstart a race war, which they nicknamed Helter Skelter. But actually, it's more likely that the murder was to cover up their other crimes. To understand why Charles Manson would unleash his family on an innocent pregnant actress and her friends, you have to understand Manson himself. He was, above all else, broken. A child of emotional and physical abuse, he grew up feeling unloved and unwanted. His life followed a familiar trajectory. Petty theft, assaults, prison, and a constant need for validation. By the time he began collecting his followers in 1967, Manson exhibited troubling behavior consistent with narcissism, and he seemed incapable of empathy. He preyed on women half his age, building his own private harem. He sexually manipulated his followers and kept them high on LSD, slowly brainwashing them into thinking he was a deity. He isolated his followers on Spawn Ranch, an old movie set in the mountains outside of L.A. He scared the Manson family into believing that the apocalyptic race war was coming. In his estimation, the white man had oppressed the black community for far too long, and it was their turn to take over. While most of the white race would die, Manson and his followers would survive through his guidance. But he also taught the Manson family that while the black community would seize power, they wouldn't know what to do with it. After the race war, which Manson called Helter Skelter because of secret messages he claimed to hear in the Beatles song, the inhabitants of Spawn Ranch would be in charge. On the night of August 8, 1969, Manson sent his four most faithful followers to a house in Beverly Hills where a record producer had once promised Manson fame and fortune. With Manson's musical dreams in ruins and his paranoia increasing, he likely thought of the house as a symbol of the entertainment industry that had rejected him. By this point, however, the house on Cielo Drive belonged to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, though Polanski was out of town. Manson's followers murdered Sharon Tate. Afterward, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Tex Watson wrote what they thought looked like Black Panther rhetoric on the living room walls, using their victim's blood as ink. 
The idea was to blame the murders on the Black Panthers in the hopes of both covering up the crime and, Manson claimed, jump-starting Helter Skelter. When Susan, Patricia, Tex, and Linda arrived back at the ranch, Manson was in a celebratory mood. He figured that by morning, there would be riots in the streets. He assumed Los Angeles would be set on fire. So naturally, he was disappointed when the southern skyline never filled with black smoke. It seemed LA was yet to burn. The night of August 10th, he sent the same four assailants on another mission. This time, they were joined by Charles Manson himself and the two youngest members of the Manson family, 19-year-olds Clem Grogan and Leslie Van Houten. Together, they murdered two more people, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, who had been chosen seemingly at random. An autopsy would later show that Rosemary had been stabbed 41 times and Lino 26 times, plus repeated punctures from a fork. Again, they tried to stage the crime scene in a way that made the Black Panthers look responsible. The Manson family crimes never sparked a race war, but that's not to say they didn't leave a lasting mark on American culture. At the time, the counterculture movement was gaining momentum. Peaceful protests against racial injustice and the Vietnam War captured full news cycles. But once the Manson family was connected to the Tate and LaBianca murders in late 1969, the country was quick to demonize all hippies. Granted, Manson never considered himself a hippie, but the Manson family's flower child aesthetic was enough for the mainstream media to vilify the entire counterculture. The once peaceful protests against the Vietnam War grew violent. The Kent State shootings marked a turning point in the free love roots of the hippie movement. By the time the murders went to trial, the spirit of the 60s was dead a final victim of Charles Manson. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you'd like the full story of the Manson family murders, check out our episodes of Female Criminals and Crimes of Passion that dive deeper into the story. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 